The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Oh, we just sang a song about home. Something that resonates within most human hearts as we think about a home as a place of, of warmth and love and rest. Perhaps first we think of our human homes like that, but that's only because there's a real home. You created families and you created existence here in this world. You created all things that we see and taste and touch and experience here to tell us the real story, to tell us the story of you and your people, the story about home. You've made a place for us to be with you. And you want all the nations to hear of it. It is your intention to call a people from every tongue and tribe and nation and to call them home. That's because you are good. You've made a way and we say thank you for it. You've made a place and we say thank you for it. And you've told us of it in the scriptures from start to finish. You've told us of these great realities and you've showed us in history You've given us eyewitnesses to the work that you've done and then you carry forth testimony of the work that you have done and what can be experienced by people from every tongue and tribe. Thank you. You are a good God to provide and then to declare the good news of the salvation that brings us home. Thank you. This morning, Lord, as we consider this in the end of the Gospel of Luke, will you help us to see what's here, to take it in and and understand it, and to believe it, and to be moved by it. Spirit of God, we ask you for power because you're the only one who can actually help us to to see. You're the one who opens minds. You're the one who moves hearts. So would you give repentance and faith this morning to us, wherever we are, whatever our particular need is, will you act so as to meet us individually where we are and draw us to Christ? Save and build. To his honor we pray this. Thank you. Lift up Christ. Build up his people to hear the word, believe it, and then obey it. For our good and for his honor, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 24, where we meet yet another group of people who are simply stunned 
to encounter the resurrected Jesus. We've seen him so far arrested and tried and condemned and crucified, and we saw the certain evidence of his death. The execution squad watched it start to finish and certified it to the Roman governor when he asked. His enemies, who were extremely concerned that he died, they watched and they were satisfied. His friends also watched and were crushed by it. As they took him down physically and handled him, we have, we have their names. This is, this is the mark of history. We know who these people's names were. They took him down. They handled his body. They wrapped him for burial. They placed him in a distinct tomb, prepared spices so as later to go and anoint his body. They all knew it. They all saw it. He's dead, and they expected him to stay dead. And their hopes were crushed by it if they were followers satisfied if they were enemies. We've seen all that, and then we've been confronted, and really that's probably the best word to use for this because it's, it's a hard-to-reckon-with fact that just kind of bumps into us, bumps into the people in the passage. We've been confronted by some unexpected news. The tomb is empty, and there are angels there who say that he's alive again. Can you believe that? What do you, what do you make of that? Or what do you make of last week's passage with the confirming news that Jesus actually appeared to two forlorn disciples on their, on their way home to Emmaus? Those two did not believe the women. They, they couldn't believe it. just too hard to understand. And because they didn't believe that Jesus was alive again, they are racked with hopelessness. They are, they are despairing, forlorn. But their hearts first came alive again to hope when Jesus, still concealing his identity, when Jesus opened up the scriptures to them and showed them in the scriptures, this is what had to be. Betrayal, death, and resurrection. This is all the plan of God. Told beforehand. And their hearts came alive when they looked at the scriptures, which we can still experience ourselves today. We can still see in the spirit-illumined scriptures the plan of God, and it can still stir us to life, just the Bible alone. But of course, he did physically then reveal himself to them, and after he departed quickly, they also departed quickly, and they went back to Jerusalem, and they found the disciples there, the apostles and the others, and found out that Peter had also seen him alive. So the evidence, kind of like waves hitting us ashore, the evidence is beginning to mount. The women and the tomb and the angels, and then the disciples in Emmaus, and then Peter. There's a buzz in the room. Jesus is alive. The Lord is risen, they're saying. But they're not really quite ready to believe that and have it proven to them. It's still kind of hard to, to grasp. I mean, there's, they're saying, he's alive again, but do you mean like alive, alive, like bodily, like physically, actually, like alive? I don't know. Which brings us to our passage for today. Let me read 36 to 49, and then I'm going to draw out three observations from it. This is Luke 24. 36 to 49. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. 
touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24. I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first. He has risen bodily. See it and believe it. He has risen bodily. See it and believe it. Jesus came and suddenly stood among them, and this is not a magical appearing or a mystical appearing. In fact, the opposite is what is emphasized. Jesus is very much made of solid matter, like a person is. He's not immaterial, and he's not a ghost, though they certainly thought so at first in shock. It's a surprise, to say the least. And he's just, as he describes them in verse 38, they are troubled and they still find doubt rising up in their hearts. I mean, they've heard all the evidence. He's standing right there. I mean, they've seen this, but they still think it's like a Jesus ghost. It's really hard. We're, we're really familiar with this, but can you imagine, just think of somebody that you know who's passed away. It would be really hard to believe that person was alive again, and even if you saw the person, you'd think ghost, spirit of some sort. They're afraid and frightened, and there's doubt rising, and they're totally surprised. And so verse 39, what does Jesus do? He puts himself on physical display. Look at me. Handle me. Don't just touch. The word there is about grab or grope. Come over here, Put your hands on me and squeeze and feel the skin and feel the, the muscles and feel the bone underneath. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm here bodily. I'm not a spirit. I'm, I'm physically here. In fact, do you have anything to eat? Not because he's just a guy and is always eating and hasn't eaten in a couple days so he's hungry. No. He wants to show them body that works. He's not just external. He's got an internal digestive tract. He can take in a physical piece of meat, fish, and it has somewhere to go physically. He ate, it says, right in front of their eyes. That's the end of verse 43. 
and they disbelieve for joy and marvel. Disbelieve for joy. That's now. I can't believe this with a huge smile on their face. Disbelieve for joy. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. No way. No way. That, that's disbelief for joy. They can't believe their eyes, but on the other hand, they can't not believe their eyes and their hands and their ears and their noses. There's the scar. Clean through. Both. The spike went in and went right through. It's remarkably healed up for just a couple days, but, but there it's not stage makeup. I mean, I'm touching it. I'm feeling it. No way. This requires our attention. Why does Luke, God through Luke, keep putting these things, this chapter has several of these sorts of things, these sorts of, of situations, of appearances, of statements. Because this is exactly how you would prove such a thing. This is exactly how you would prove a real, genuine, physical, bodily resurrection. There's nothing left for anybody who's, who's kind of critical to say, well, he didn't do this, or he didn't say that, or, well, you know, we, it's probably fake because there's nothing left. When Jesus is standing in front of you with one of your hands wrapped around his scarred wrist, and he takes the other one and put, takes a piece of fish, puts it in his mouth, chews it, and swallows it, we've reached the point when it takes more faith to convince yourself this isn't real than it takes to believe it. Can you believe this? Becomes, how, how can you not? Of course, we, for us here in this room, we have to circle back around this one more time because it's not my hand on his wrist. It's not yours. We're just reading about this in a book written by a guy named Luke. And, of course, we've all read a bunch of stuff that's not true. So, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe these guys are just making this up or, or they're wrong. Okay, maybe. Let's think about that. And think about this. If you're not thinking about this, but you've already got some other conclusion, then, then you're liable to come to the conclusion you've already got. You've got to think about this and realize it's, it's right here at this point that biblical Christianity and the other faiths of the world divide. Every, every faith, every philosophy, every worldview makes claims about things, some of which are kind of hard to understand or kind of hard to believe. And people kind of say, I, I buy that a little more than the other, or, or this seems better, more sound. Okay. But here we've got a divide. We've got a claim about something astounding that people claim to have seen, touched, heard, smelled, to be eyewitnesses of. 
maybe Luke made it up or he's mistaken, but understand it wouldn't just be Luke. It would also be Mark would have to be wrong and Matthew would have to be wrong and John would have to be wrong and the other writers of the Gospels. Realize they weren't writing the Bible. They were writing accounts, history, that then became the Bible when it was all put together. They'd all have to get it wrong. And so with Peter and the rest of the apostles, they have to get that all wrong. And Paul, who was a sworn enemy until he met Jesus, And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the more than 500 other people who also saw Jesus physically, bodily alive all at once, and critically were in, most of them still alive at the time of these writings in the area where Jesus lived. This is the big divide because Understand, people don't lie like this. People don't make mistakes like this and then lay down their lives for the lie. These, these followers of Jesus, it, it costs them tremendously. Many of them literally laid down their lives, literally died. And people don't die. Sane people, gracious people, loving people, kind people, respectable people, people in the right minds don't die for a hoax that they know they are perpetrating and perpetuating. This is, this is a very important fine point because you might say, All kinds of people are martyrs for all kinds of false causes. Yes, things they've been told and have come to believe. That's different, totally different than what I've seen with my own eyes. I'm telling you, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm telling you, I put my hands on the wrist. That's different than I think, I'm persuaded. They're eyewitnesses. And they give their lives for it, for him. This is incredibly important to understand. And it's incredibly important to understand that as they spoke of this and as they proclaimed this message, the critics of Jesus who wanted him dead never offered a body to try to refute the claim. Because there wasn't one. When we we talk about biblical Christianity, we're not talking about philosophy or theory or theology even. We're first talking about historical fact against various philosophies and theologies. There's a great big divide, and we have to understand this and grasp it and face it. Whether you're still wondering about this, still kind of asking yourself, do I believe, what do I make of this? Face that. If you're a Christian, face that. Your faith is first and foremost built on a fact, not a theory, not a teaching. That's really important. This biblical faith is built on a dead man who came back to life again. And surprisingly, 
and they all felt the force of this irony too, surprisingly, the most rational, logical, reasonable, likely thing is that that actually happened. That he was dead and that he's alive again, standing right here in their midst. Even though they did not expect it. Even though perhaps they should have. Jesus physically, bodily appears to them to prove that he is physically, bodily risen from the dead. It doesn't stop there. He goes on past that because it still remains very important for, for them and for all of us to see that this was always the plan of God. And so for the third time, like with the angels at the tomb and like he did with the, with the men on the road to Emmaus, for the third time, he points them back to the scriptures, verse 45, opens their mind to understand it, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a way of saying the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures. To show them that this was, this was written down. Everything written about the Christ has just happened. It was always the plan of God. It had to be fulfilled. He'd mentioned this before, as we've seen back in chapter 9 and chapter 18. The Old Testament had predicted it. And Jesus does not walk them through some of those places here. We talked a little bit about it last week. I'll refer you back to last week's sermon if you want to think a little more about this. But he just kind of summarizes the crucifixion and the resurrection was the plan. Death and then victory over death was the plan for how Messiah would save. That's going to get us to the next point. But the first point, pause here for a second and grasp this. There is a most gracious gift from God here. of work to open our eyes to see bodily raised. Fascinating. Unique. A powerful testimony. Jesus is who he said he is and provides what he said he provides and will bring his people with him into life after the grave. A person who grasps this, grasps this and marvels at it in joy will be incredibly confident and filled with hope. This is what drove, realize, this is what drove these first apostles in their incredibly bold witness to the very people who killed Jesus. Read about this in the book of Acts. Essentially, they, the, the enemies say to them, Shut up, or we're going to kill you. And the response really is, so what? I saw him alive again. The grave is not the end. We don't think like that because we don't see him like that. See him. See him. He's alive. Honestly, physically alive. He has ascended into heaven and he sits there bodily, still there, bodily. Reigning and will come again bodily. There is no ethos of Jesus that has come back to life in the world. No, the body of Jesus physically came back to life in the world 
and physically reigns and will physically appear again. Jesus lives and reigns and is coming. A person who sees this and marvels at it will be invincible and will be filled with hope. That's real. And they saw that there in, in, with their eyes in his person, and he showed them in the scriptures this was always the plan. And as he opened the scriptures, they saw something more there also. Which gets us to the second observation. This good news is not only to be known, seen, and believed. This good news is not only to be known, it is to be proclaimed to all. This good news is not only to be known, it is to be proclaimed to all. So first, we look at this elaboration on the good news. I'm looking at verse 46, right after he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What, he, what we see there is that Jesus wants his disciples, wants us to understand some things, to see some things to know them. So he shows them what's there, like we've seen already, 44, what was written there about the Christ, what had to be fulfilled. 46 comes back to that and then expands on it a little bit. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Similar to what we've seen so far. 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. So there's the message, or there's the good news, that in the name of Jesus, in his name, repentance and forgiveness of sins is available. Let's consider that part first. What the plan to send Christ, to send him to suffer, to send him to the cross was all about, was to make available forgiveness of sins. To provide a way, the, the only way, there's no other name under heaven by which this can happen, but God so kindly intended to and then did in fact provide a way to both satisfy his justice and be merciful. To be merciful, to, to forgive sinners. Mercy is never obligatory. He, he wanted to. It is his desire. He wanted to forgive people, to be merciful and he provided a way that he could do that, be merciful and satisfy his justice, that he could atone, rightly pay for sin. God provided a way to put these two things together, that his justice could be satisfied and his desire to be merciful could be satisfied. Christ crucified is the way that God planned and the way that God provided that the justice of God and the loving, gracious mercy of God could both be made real in the lives of particular human beings like you and me. This is an amazing plan. One that we didn't hatch, but that he did. And that he carried out in sending Christ, and in crucifying Christ, and in raising Christ, that forgiveness of sins could be made real. Forgiveness is a sweet thing. 
to stand guilty of sin against God and then be released from it. It's a sweet thing. And the more a person grows in the understanding, the more, the more our awareness of the holiness of God, of the righteousness of God, of the transcendent supremacy of God, of the purity of God, the more a person grows in understanding of that, then on the flip side, sadly, perhaps frighteningly so, the more our understanding of our own not that grows. The more we come to understand, I, I am not holy and I am not right and I am not pure, that is increasingly, perhaps depressingly, perhaps frighteningly real and clearly burdensome. And so we often want to run from that and say, either God's not that holy or I'm not that bad. Neither one of those are right. He is holy, 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 and I am not, not, not. When you grasp that and you see that the spread of that, oh, and then how sweet is it to be forgiven? To have it wiped away and not... We sometimes, we, we people, we, we deal with forgiveness sometimes in a way that it kind of cheapens it. We, we forgive people and we really kind of say, oh, never mind, you know, not, not a big deal. But we know there's still something that's kind of, I, I owe you, I owe you one. To have a debt wiped away and in its place, perfect, delighted, clean fellowship. It's a sweet thing. Have you ever experienced that with a person? To have a, a debt, an obligation removed, and amazingly, though you don't, you don't think it should be this way, but, but amazingly, they welcome you now. They give themselves to you now. That's a sweet thing. So much more with God. Freely so he designed, freely so he gave, freely so he executed a way for you to be Wiped, clean, forgiven, restored, welcomed, loved, cherished, and blessed. This is good news. And it tells us of a God who is good. This is a God who himself is sweet. A God who himself is love. A God who himself is one that you want have always longed for, in fact, but, but really sometimes as you consider your sin, have never dared to believe, could be, but is. This is the God who is. This is the God who wanted you. This is the God who provided a way for you to be forgiven and drew you to know it and drew you to himself and loves you now with an everlasting love that is wide and long and high and deep. This is a good, sweet God who would make for forgiveness of sin available to those who repent. Repentance. It's, it's there in the same phrase. 
Repentance and forgiveness of sins, they're tied together. It's important to understand this word because forgiveness hinges on repentance. It's easy to misunderstand it. I think probably probably two ways we misunderstand repentance and they, they kind of run in opposite directions. One way may be a little more common for those of us who have grown up around religious things, around, around churches and whatnot. We think sometimes that repentance means we change what we're doing and do something different. So it becomes don't do that or do that. And what that becomes is actually what I do to be forgiven, which is wrong, which is not true. We think like that often, and actually if you keep thinking about that, it just crushes you. How much do I have to do and keep doing? The forgiveness is a sweet thing, and I need it. And it, it, as it's painted in front of me, it, it's a, it would be relief to me. And then you tell me i got to do, and i got to keep doing, and i got to do and do. Oh, man. I just got loaded up with the burden. Uh, no, that's not. That's not what he means when he talks about repentance here. And the other way we misunderstand it sometimes is seeing that we, we, we run, 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 run over to repentance being just a simple, straightforward change of mind. Like a person who says, I don't believe in Jesus, then comes to say, well, you know, what would it hurt? Might even help. Okay, I believe in Jesus. Change his mind. Good to go. Forgiven. No. No. That may not tell you anything about what's actually going on inside. What repentance is about, you can hear it in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament words that are, that are translated into English as repent. It's about a turning of the inner self. A turning of the mind or of the heart, if you will. Turning from trusting in one thing to trusting in another. It's the actual heart that turns, not just the, not just the voice. We grow up thinking, I must do to make myself worthy, to make myself right. And then we bump into God's word that says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one does good. And no one can. Well, who can make me right? Then who can make me worthy? Only Christ can. And I turn from trusting in one thing, me, to trusting in something else. So it is a change of perspective. It is a change inside of me, a turn. But it's a change at the heart level. That's a dependence level, a trust level. 
I'm leaning on one way. I'm trusting and I'm hoping in one thing. And I turn to trust and hope in another, in Christ and his work on the cross, not my work in attempting to obey. That will, given time, lead to different behavior for certain. But not as a part of repentance, but rather as a product of repentance. But just like the thief hanging on the cross, repentance can happen in a moment. When a turn in your heart happens. And the call of the Bible always is repent, trust Christ, not yourself. That is, believe in Christ, not yourself. And forgiveness comes. Repentance and forgiveness of sin available in Christ. That's the message. But we must realize something else written here and really I'm now just coming to Luke's main point of emphasis. If you think about where we are in the Gospel of Luke, we're at the very, 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 very end. We're, you know, six lines from the end. And Luke's got a closing point here. God through Luke has a closing point here. That forgiveness and repentance of sins would be proclaimed to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. It's not only to be known, believed, it's to be proclaimed, and that by us. You are my witnesses. The apostles, the early disciples, certainly uniquely so. They, they, were, they were eyewitnesses and they had a unique place in that. But this is, this is the call to all the church. All of the church is to be involved in the harvest, as we've seen earlier in this book. Different roles we play, but we are all about a calling in of a harvest. This is an outward-looking, outward-announcing call. And the scope of it is amazingly large. This message is to be proclaimed to all nations, starting in Jerusalem and spreading out, 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 out to all people groups, to all ethnicities. That's what nations mean, not just nation states, but to the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth. And that was always the plan, always written in the scriptures from Genesis 12. God promised to bless Abraham uniquely so, and through him to bless the families of the earth, the peoples, the nations of the earth. God said always, I'm going to do something particular and unique in a particular little group, but it is not about that particular little group, it's about the world. It is about a particular people with a particular book and a particular prophet and a particular land and a particular king. But it's to be proclaimed everywhere because that Israelite king and that particular man's coming and his life and his death and his resurrection is the news that's worthy and needed by all people everywhere because it's about how God provides forgiveness. 
the God of all of the earth, provides, offers, declares the opportunity for forgiveness through repentance to everyone. This is the, this is the need of the nations. And God is the God of all of the earth that has a, has a desire to call in a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So he says to us, tell it. Proclaim it everywhere. Which I hear, and I, I admit my response is a little bit like, oh my word. Because I have family members and friends and neighbors that it's a little difficult to talk to, let alone people in Saudi Arabia. How is that to become reality? I can understand. I mean, we can understand, right? Here's the gospel. I am to see it and to believe it. Great. And proclaim it to all nations. Yikes. How can I do that? That brings me to the third point. He will give us what we need to proclaim this good news. He will give us what we need to proclaim this good news. Hearing this call to proclaim, a very natural response is, I think, one of overwhelmed, to feel overwhelmed at the daunting task. Because my inner, my inner monologue is, how am I supposed to convince somebody of that? you know, my neighbor, let alone my neighbor, but the person who's never, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to convince somebody that a guy they never heard of died and came back to life and that they should care about that. How am I going to do that? This repentance that you talked of, I can teach people to do something different, but I can't cause actual heart change. How am I going to do that? And the answer is, you're not. You aren't supposed to convince because of what's in verse 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now, God has promised many things to us. Many amazing promises are, are everywhere in the Scripture. Many things about the kingdom, about life in the kingdom, its blessings, its realities, but Jesus means one promise in particular here. The promise, and come upon you. What does he mean by that? Well, the next sentence helps a little bit. But stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is saying, put them together. I will send something from on high. It will come upon you. It will clothe you. And when that happens, you'll be clothed in power. Wait for it. So is the promise of the Father just that, power. The power that they would need for witness. Yes and no, not quite. Not quite. It's not quite power abstractly considered. To think this through a little bit more, perhaps we could look at Acts chapter 1. If you want to, you can turn there, but you don't, you don't have to. You can just jot it down. Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is also written by Luke. It's his second book. If you were to look there at, at chapter 1, the very beginning verses, he He addresses the same man, Theophilus, that he addressed at the beginning of Luke. He's writing both of these to the same man, and he says, my previous book, the Gospel of Luke, was about all that Jesus began to do. Now I'm going to tell you what he continues to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says of Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, just like right here. Verse 5, then in, in Acts, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, says Jesus. He's going to baptize them, send upon them the promise of the Father, that is, the promised Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in all nations to the end of the earth. Very similar to our passage here. He's really, he's, he's writing two books and he's stitching them together, the end and the beginning of the two respective books, getting the same point. So we see that when we put it all together, it's clear for us, the promise of the Father is not a thing. It's not power. It's a person. God the Holy Spirit. When he comes upon us, then he he fills us and we receive power. The Spirit of God then will be witnesses, will witness with us, along with us, through us, about the truths of these things that we have seen, the truths of the gospel, which leads us to consider two things. First, in the context of our passage here in Luke, there's some really helpful good news here. We're called to proclaim a message, and we're promised a person to go with us to empower that proclamation. It's not up to us. to to, to stir up the courage and to cleverly coerce or persuade people to respond. We really are just witnesses, like in a courtroom. We're not the prosecuting attorney trying to put together a case and, and convince jurors, connect the facts to their hearts and minds so that they come to the right conclusion. That that's the that's the prosecutor's job. 
Not the witness's job. The witness just tells what the witness knows. That's good news. Because we could never make that happen. It's good news because then we don't have to try to make that happen. I was reading a book this past week in which an author was talking about his, it was a man, his upbringing in the church and every conversation that turned to witnessing left him incredibly guilt-ridden and uncomfortable because it always ended up talking about closing. What do I mean by that? Closing the deal. You're not a good salesperson if you don't close. If you just mention your product and then move on. You're supposed to close. Well, if you're mentioning the product of Jesus, you've got to bring the person to Jesus and bring them to a point of decision. And ideally, that should be the right decision to trust Jesus. And so there always was conversation about and always an expectation, who have you won to the Lord? Who have you led to Christ this last week? And the answer really is no one has ever done that. No one has ever won anybody to Christ. No one has ever led anybody to Christ. Never. No one has ever closed any deal in regards to this message. If we understand each other, then I'm, I'm fine using that language of, of leading people to Christ because, of course, we are to be involved. Jesus just said so. We are to, to lead people to Jesus. And if we understand each other, then I'm okay with that language. But often that language about winning and leading is really about closing and about, we hate the feeling of this. My friend, my neighbor, my relative, the guy I meet in the street, the person in Saudi Arabia, I got to somehow coerce him or her to pray a prayer. Yeah, that feels bad. And I'm bad at it, so it feels like it's a burden. And the good news is, that's all wrong-headed. You're just a witness. The Spirit of God is the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus promised he would send him to us, the church. And as we go out as witnesses, we go out with and under the authority and with and under the power of the Spirit of God, who is himself carrying out his mission to gather in his harvest into his barn. It's his. It's his great commission. It's his work. This should free us from a sense of burden, and it should free us to do what we actually want to do, to just love people and tell them good news. To just love people and tell them good news and, and leave the results to them and God. I don't have to make something to, to coerce, to, to say it just right and, and make it happen. And if they reject it, I'm okay with that. I'm not a failure. This should free us when we hear the, 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 the call, the, the order really, to proclaim his name to all the nations, to realize in his power, under his authority, I'm just a witness. 
and I get to actually help people. Not manipulate them, coerce them, corner them, put them on the spot, the stuff we hate doing. This should free us from guilt and from obligation, and it should enable us to be honest and clear in love and, and free with people, to let them think and make up their own minds, knowing that the power of God accomplishes the purposes of God, not instead of our involvement, but with and over it. Just like he did when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures these couple of times here, it was the scriptures in, in the language that they spoke. So we speak in the language of the people we're talking to. We open the scriptures and we, we leave it up to God to do if, when, as, and how he pleases. And we pray. And we love. That's good news for us and it's good news for the world at large listening to us. Everybody hates being sold a bill of goods. Everybody hates being manipulated and coerced and sensing I'm being twisted here because you have to close the deal with me. We can say to those listening to us, I don't. I'm hands off. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> it just occurred to me, I'm looking at several guys who have sales histories. <laughs> I'm not trying to badmouth sale, salesmen, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying this is, we have an image of sales that we attach to, to being witnesses, and it's probably bad sales. You'd probably tell me it's bad sales technique in the first place. I, I would agree, so let's not do it in witnessing either. And we can say then to the world, we're not going to do that with you when we talk to you. And so you, you should know that Christians shouldn't be trying to manipulate or coerce or judge or condemn you, but should be telling you what they've seen and what they know. And that may be very directly, but it should be with gentleness and respect. It may be very direct, but with gentleness and respect. because I don't actually even believe that I can change your mind. I can't actually work in you. I, I, I'm not even trying to because I can't work actual repentance. Repentance is a gift from God as he opens the eyes, as he reveals, as, it's as he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, as he opens people's minds, they see it differently. And you find, I've been granted repentance because I'm different. God gives that if and when and as and how he chooses. And so I'm not trying to make that so. So you can, you can stand at ease in front of Christians, or, or what they should be like, I should say. And you can stand at ease before God. because It might sound to you like you're saying that God's going like to come in and God's going to work on the inside of me. Yeah, but it's, but it's this God. And if you've tracked with, with this whole gospel of Luke, you've seen that this God is good. 
That when he acts in power, it's for the sake of what's right and what's holy and what's pure, what's driven by love and mercy and compassion, what lifts up justice, what, what blesses people. There is an enemy who hates you. It isn't him. He hates your enemy. And if he were to come upon you and, and grab a hold of your heart and change it, it would be for your blessing and for your good. This is a God that you don't have to run from or, or, or defend against, but it's a God that you can openly talk to and say, what's true? Show me. Open my eyes. And you can find that in the Scriptures, and maybe you should be able to find it from a good Christian friend that you have around you because we should be leaving our hands off of you and just telling you what we know and not trying to manipulate you. This is, this is good news for Christians as witnesses and good news for those to whom Christians as witnesses are talking. That the Spirit of God, who is himself wise and merciful, powerful, just, and true, he is a God who is holy and he is a God who is love. That this God, this Spirit, is the one who deals with people. And he always does what's right. So the first thing that we have to consider about Jesus sending the promise is that, that we have a promise sent to us, the person of the Holy Spirit who will go with us in this calling to be proclaimers to all the nations. And the second thing to consider, very brief, because it's not really the point of the context here. But it's, it's good news, we can't skip it entirely. But the promise of the Father is not only about witnessing power. He didn't just promise to give us the Holy Spirit so that we could have power for witness. He promised to give us the Holy Spirit, and that means a hundred things, one of which is power for witness. The one in this context. But the Father promised to give you the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, Christian, to live inside of you. The presence of God with you. This message, this good news, does not just end at repentance and forgiveness of sins, the end. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, so that you can experience and enjoy the presence of God forever. God made a way to clear out the barrier that sin would be between us and God so that we can have God. And not just God one day when we die and go to heaven, God right now. God, the full, whole person of God dwelling within you to commune with you. This is sweet. That God would take up residence in us and live with us, connect himself to us so that we, weren't, we are never parted. This is good news. It's not the main point of this passage, but it's something that we can't miss. That what we can tell people God offers is not just some sort of get out of jail free, but really it's a get into God's presence. The one for whom you were made, 
one that gives you life. Promised and now delivered in the gospel by Christ himself. The promised presence of God. There's a message here that we are to see and to believe, but not only believe, but proclaim, and not proclaim in our own power, but in his. It's the message of Luke, it's the message of the scripture, that God made a way for people to be forgiven and to dwell with him in his presence forever and ever and ever, and that's good news. That's the message of the gospel. Believe it and tell other people about it. Let me pray. Father, you are good. Open our eyes and show us that. Grow in us, resolve. That's who you are. That's what you're like. Would you cause our hearts to, to sing with that truth? In ourselves, Lord, this is a struggle for us in ourselves, a struggle for me at least, in ourselves to sing to ourselves and then also to sing to others. We pray that you'd use us, that you would call on your people and you would honor your name through us. Thank you for the promised spirit who empowers witness and is your dwelling with us. You're good and kind, and we say thank you. Now, Lord, would you continue to meet with us as we turn towards communion? Will you commune with us individually and as a body? Will you continue to inhabit this place, speak to your people here, whatever needs to be said? There are some here who aren't yours. Lord, would you call them by your spirit in their hearts? Show them your goodness. We love you, we trust you, and we say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.